Good CEOs build and maintain successful companies. Great CEOs build and maintain influential ones. We're connecting with successful business leaders on how to create the impact within your organization that transforms it into one of influence at the CEO Roundtable. How you guys doing? I'm Tony Arce, and this is the CEO Roundtable Podcast. Today, I'm joined by Sarah Ray Stalinga, CEO at Easter Seals, serving Chicagoland and Greater Rockford. Sarah, thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me, Tony. No, it is quite the pleasure. And, you know, learning more about Easter Seals and, and what you guys do is such an incredible mission that I'm so excited to, to jump into that. But before we do, love to learn a little bit more about you and, you know, where you're from originally and how you got to Chicago and becoming the CEO of Easter Seals. Absolutely. Um, well, I grew up in St. Paul, um, and which was a, a wonderful place to grow up. I have two brothers, um, and um, St. Paul was kind of my anchor location. My dad was a theology professor at a university there. My mom was a high school religious education teacher. And I made my way to Chicago to come to University of Chicago to go to the college. Oh, wow. Um, and so moved to Chicago um, basically to to attend college and have left a couple of times, but have come back both times. Oh, you did so, leave a couple of times. Yes. Interesting. Okay, well, yeah. I'm glad to learn about that, too. Um, I don't know why you would have left, but <laughs> So when, I mean, to hear about the, the your parents being involved in education and, and doing what you do, was that really the start for you of, of pursuing this career path? No question. Yeah. You know, just having a dad in higher education and a mom in K-12 education, um, and, you know, education was really a cornerstone of our home, of my upbringing. We kind of had a, a couple of different foundational cornerstones of um, how we were raised. And it was education and music um, and our faith um, and really simple living. You know, my parents had a, had a garden in the backyard where they grew vegetables. And, um, but that developmental piece, really being committed to making yourself you know, as good as you could be to the responsibility to utilize your skill sets and talents to contribute to the world. And so, you know, that intersection between seeing the power of education, but also a sense of responsibility from our faith to use your talents um, and to contribute to the world. And That's so, really awesome. Yeah. I mean, using your, your talents. I, I always love talking about that just because mm -hmm. we're all given these talents. Right. How was that introduced to you in that faith? You've, you've mentioned it a couple of times, you know, just now that your, your faith was such a big part of that. And as we get into your role as a servant leader, you know, tell me how that really helped shape you. What were those things that were, were you know, fed into you as a, as a child and growing up? Yeah, I think, you know, a lot of that is anchored in um, integrity, a, a set of values, yeah. really, that we were expected to guide, our, that guided our lives. Um, and we saw, my brothers and I saw my parents living those values. And so, you know, some about, part of growing up in a house of faith is about, um, you know, going to church every week and the the Catholic church was the church that we attended and some of it was about, you know, reading the Bible and, and those types of things as a family. But part of it is just about the role modeling that my parents gave us about what it meant to live a life of values, yeah. um, a life of integrity, a life of faith. And I, and I think that coupled with the strong message around the importance of education, of bettering yourself, but also using your talents to, to help other people Absolutely. Um, has, has really guided my life path. In important ways. No, I mean, you can you can tell it's very evident and very present uh, in your life now in your beingness. 
What did that look like in terms of a, a career aspiration for you, right? How, what, at what point did you decide, this is the path I want to take? Well, it was. It, I, I think education was always part of my lifeblood and my path. I didn't really understand how that would play out for me. I didn't have a clear definition, a clear, you know, trajectory in my head when I went to college. Um, and it actually it wasn't until my senior year in college that that all become, began to come into focus for me. So really, um, at the University of Chicago, I participated in something called the Neighborhood Schools Program, which was like a tutoring program in Chicago public schools. And that was a real eye-opener for me. You know, I, I considered myself growing up in St. Paul as being from a city, from an urban area. And I attended public school. I went to, I'm a proud graduate of St. Paul Central High School. And, um, but when I got to Chicago schools and I got inside of Chicago schools, it was sort of a, a, a wake-up call for me. Um, first of all, I think the thing that was driven home to me was just how segregated the city was. Um, certainly, I went to a high school that had segregation within it, you know, that there were people of different races. It was a very diverse high school, but you would see clusters of kids sitting together in the lunchroom or mm -hmm. in classes by race. Yeah. But Chicago just took it to a whole new level, and that really, would, it just, it made an impression on me. Interesting. I mean, you hear, I, I've heard that so often, but yeah. being from Chicago that, I guess it's just, you grow up and think that that's just how it is, and to yeah. hear that perspective, you're like, no, it's... It's a, it's a kind of a Chicago thing. It is. And, you know, Unfortunately. the school system has changed so dramatically for the better since I first came to the city. Um, and I just give Chicago public schools so much credit for that. And the, the CEOs who have come through, you know, all the way from Paul Vallis to Arnie Duncan to Janice Jackson just really transformed the school district. But when I first came, it wasn't just that it was segregated, it was the quality of the school, the amount of resources, the number of dollars that the schools has was pretty much determined by which part of the city the school was in yeah. and what the race of the kids were that were in that school building. And so I think seeing that and really understanding that when I was in college was what drew me you know, into the profession, into the, the field. And so I got to my senior year and I was trying to figure out what I was going to do. And um, I had a couple of different options already, you know, on the table. One of them was to go directly to graduate school, for instance. And I was on a campus bus, um, you know, riding from one place on the campus to the other. And I found this brochure from this place called the Center for School Improvement, which was a university-based center, you know, focused on education reform in, in urban schools by bringing together master researchers and master practitioners. Oh, wow. And there was and a whole I, school dedicated to that at University of Chicago? There's a whole center. Right. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Gotcha. And I looked at that brochure and I said, this is where I want to work. And this was, you know, pre-email days. We were like on the cusp, but I didn't have an email account. So my only option was to leave voicemails for this professor, Tony Bright, who ran that center. And eventually through, you know, some connections that I made at the university, um, you know, I got my my internship um, at the Center for School Improvement. And I think my parents were a little like, you're turning down this grad school offer to go and work for this you know, little university-based center. But I think what called to me was the intersection between research and practice and that being the lever to help to improve schools. And so like it wasn't I went conceptual. It was, it was, they were doing it. They were doing it. 
were doing it. And they were learning, I'm assuming, in the process. They other were, than that, you yes. know, it was like groundbreaking, right? It was. Because even as I'm hearing it, it sounds groundbreaking for today. It was groundbreaking. And I, I think the other thing that it gave me, which is really one of the most important things that happened to me in my young career, is, you know, I was the youngest person who worked there by probably a couple of decades. Everybody else there was either an established researcher or they were retired principals, you know, retired master teachers. And that group of practitioners has been, they became my lifelong mentors. You know, many of them I still see almost every week or every month. Um, and they've been mentors to me for 30 years. Yeah. You know, they were mentors to me when I was 21, when I started there. And now that I'm in my, my own career in education, and that's where I really learned what leadership was. That's where I learned what it takes to improve an organization. That's where I learned, you know, bringing your humanity and your emotion and your heart and your empathy um, into the work that you do. I learned that from that group of mentors that still stand by me today. That's amazing. One of the conversations we were having before getting on the mics was just how um, oftentimes you were presented students in your career where you had to be the decision between them being expelled or not. Yeah. Right. And and what you often saw that you one time you did have to expel someone for the most part, you would basically prove to these teachers that this student is worthy of a second chance. You know, right. Smart individual. How much of what that conversation that we had of just being able to see things a little differently than a lot of the teachers that you, you were supporting, how much of that came from that experience? Yeah. Well, I, I look at these mentors that I have and, you know, Barbara Williams, um, who was a master principal. Actually, she was the principal at the Cook County Detention Center School at the Audi Home, the, the school that's inside of the Juvenile Delinquency Center. Um, and Sarah Spurlark, who was, you know, this iconic principal um, of the Ray School in Hyde Park, Al Bertani, Marv Hoffman, um, you know, these folks that have been mentors to me all along. I think what I learned from them when I was impressionable, you know, 21-year-old, <laughs> just starting out in my career, was that there, I mean, there are some aspects of expertise that you bring to the work that you do in transformation or social service or improvement work in urban schools, for instance. But the other thing that they brought was a real focus and love, um, sometimes tough love, but love for the kids yeah. and that you always keep them at the center of your work. And that definitely influenced me. You know, as I moved into my leadership role at the Urban Education Institute, and as we discussed, you know, I was the expulsion appeal officer. And so if a student, you know, if one of our campuses recommended expulsion for a student, I was the person that heard the, the appeal, yeah. essentially, if the, the parent judge. decided to appeal. <laughs> and, you know, I developed a little bit of a reputation in that for I never expelled the kids. I never wanted to do that. What I saw in the kids who came before me is that it was some of our most gifted, spirited, smartest, and most capable kids that ended up in that seat. Yeah. And I feel in some ways that that was my personal mission was, how do we make schools that actually serve those kids? Wow. Those are, those are the kids that don't get served. And that's yeah. a that's a, a even a newer thought I think today right where you're you're hearing that I think mentioned something to you about the A student versus the D student and how um, you know when when A students are 
they stay in the lines and yeah. you know mid-level employees but the D students oftentimes are the ones running the companies or changing the world and, and and you hear that and it seems like you were really tapping into that because of these values that not only did you have growing up but also the, the type of work that you were drawn to right what is it for you now as a mom mm-hmm. your, your mom have two uh, teenage right oh, yes. uh, two, teenagers. two teenagers how for, when you think about when you passed up the opportunity to go to uh, get your master's, right? And you had this chance and you chose something different. How does that reflect now in terms of the way that you parent, but also the way that you view even those opportunities that come along, right? Mm-hmm. Like what what are you pouring into your kids that's some, slightly different now because of these experiences you've had? Yeah, I, I think it all is rooted back in my own upbringing to start with, which is I'm trying to model for them the kind of values that my parents modeled for me um, about service about you know their responsibility to bring their talents to bear where whatever that means whatever their talents end up being um and that we do that with the humanity and and empathy we bring that to whatever line of work or you know whatever competition we're in whether you know my son on the baseball field or my daughter and you know in rock climbing that those values guide got our, our lives. And so that started in the, the way that I was brought up. Um, like, I'll, I'll give you an example for my son, which, you know, this is something that he, that me and his father just were so proud of. When he was 10, he, we went to this baseball tournament in Iowa. And these, some of these tournaments have this practice where at the end of the game, each coach gives an MVP award to someone on the opposing team. Oh, wow. And so, you know, my son had gotten the MVP in the first game and we were in the third game and the coach tried to give him the MVP again. And he, without hesitation, handed it to another kid. And he, on his team, and explained to the coach, this is the reason why this kid deserves it more than I do. And we looked at each other and I was like, so emotional. But that's the kind of human being, you know, that that we we want our kids to be. So I think, you know, my own upbringing coupled with these lessons that I learned from these just amazing mentors that I've had. I mean, imagine having mentors from age 21 and now, you know, I'm 49 years old and I still have these same people in in my life. And and I think that has influenced the way that I live, the way that I work, the way that I parent, the way that I lead. I'm constantly reflecting on is the way that I'm behaving as a leader, as a mom, as a friend – reflective of of my values wow. so well, i think it's connected it's all connected in that way a hundred percent and we talked about your beingness and you can see it i mean even as you were sharing the story the emotion that came over you yeah. just thinking about that moment yeah you know, it's I, I don't even i don't, I don't even sense the pride in that I, what i what i feel is the love that you have for almost like a validation that yeah like this is trickled down. And look, right. you know, it's not just, you're not just witnessing your son doing it. You're, you're seeing your life. You're seeing, you know, the, the life you had with your parents, your family. It's all an evolution, right? And on that note, talking about Easter Seals and, yeah. and you know, the the service that, you know, that you lead with your leadership there. Tell me about Easter Seals, what the mission is, you know, yeah. what, what the organization, you know, is set out to do. Yeah. Well, it's an amazing place, first of all. I've been there just about three years um, and Easter Seals serving Chicagoland and Greater Rockford has two pillars of work, one that focuses in the early learning or early childhood space, and the other pillar focuses in the disability space. And um, we have a variety of programs within, you know, underneath those two pillars. 
Um, but just to give you an, an example from each side, you know, on, in the disability pillar, the biggest program is Easter Seals Academy, which is um, these are three campuses of schools that exclusively serve um, youth with autism or other disabilities. And these are kids that, you know, the regular school district public school setting is not right for them. And so um, public school districts refer those students to us. And and it's just they're amazing Amazing young people. It's just such a pleasure to. I, my office is inside the Chicago School Building. We have three school buildings: one in Tinley Park, one in Chicago, and one in the Rockford area gotcha, in the Chesney gotcha. Park. Okay. But every day I get to, you know, even coming out the door of my organization to come here today, I get to intersect with the students, and um, and I just love that that part of our work. And so, on the other side of the house, in our early childhood side of the house, early learning. Um, the largest program is Head Start, Early Head Start, which is federally funded early learning. Um, we have we serve about 1,900 young people um, in uh, 40 different uh, early childhood centers. Oh wow! So the, the, so um, they're different. The centers are different than the three that are um, that you mentioned were for the the older kids, and so the, the 40 are for the younger. On the in the disability pillar, Easter Seals Academy is ages three to 22. Oh okay okay. Uh, but then we have a separate pillar that's early childhood, early learning, and we do Head Start, Early Head Start, and then we have a variety of other programs, you know, in early intervention and um, diagnostics for autism and training around autism and, and other things. That's incredible. And now yeah. the the early childhood, what ages are that uh, are those students? So those Head Start, Early Head Start centers are all, um, you know, they're pre-learning. So it's zero, zero to three. Sometimes it's zero to five. Uh, so these would be the, you know, federally funded, essentially early childhood centers that young people would go to before they go to, yeah, yeah. to preschool. Okay. So it's it's been a wonderful experience, you know, being the CEO. I was... Um, recruited to come in at a time that was really difficult in the organization. There were a lot of financial challenges. Mm -hmm. Um, It was really framed as a turnaround CEO position. Um, And and I think that they were drawn to me because of my kind of executive leadership transformation experience. Um, But I just fell in love with the work. The work is really amazing. And it's very much aligned with the kind of equity access transformational trajectories that I was doing at the Urban Education Institute. So it fits right in my heart. No, it absolutely does. And, and, you know, just from the work that you're doing, it seems so rewarding. Just right off the bat, like that's, wow. What what an incredible thing that you're doing now. What were those challenges that, you know, that you can share where you stepped into this and went, man, <laughs> this is what I got to do? And, and and what were those steps? Maybe not even so much the logistical steps, but mentally, right? Yeah. How do you prepare yourself? How does a leader embrace those challenges? And, and, you know, what advice would you give maybe those CEOs or leaders that find themselves in that position uh, as you did once? Yeah, but I definitely I have a lot to offer. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you do. Uh, and I did, a, you know. I had some successes, and certainly I would do things differently, you know, if I could go back again. But you, lear- you learned. I learned. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but I would say this. If you're hired in a turnaround CEO position, it's it's probably worse than they think it is. <laughs> that's, that's where they, I would they, start. They're not going to tell you everything right off the bat. They're not going to scare you, right? Exactly. They want to tell you enough that you're interested, but not terrified. Yeah, and you, I don't but. know that they really knew entirely, you know, um, where the organization was. But essentially, the high-level picture was... You know, it's a 70 million operating organization. Um, we were about $22 million in debt. We had several million dollars in unpaid bills. We had a line of credit that was maxed out at $3 million. 
we had a construction project that had some disputed change orders, you know, with liens on the building. So it was, it was really in a hard place. Yeah. Sounds and, like it was um, in a really hard place. So, you know, I came in and rolled up my sleeves and it took, uh, you know, several different, different phases of kind of restructuring and, and turnaround. Um, but we eventually, you know, kind of reeled in the, the financial issues. We first had to, I brought in a, a new CFO, Sarah Boberka, who's still with me, who's amazing. I mean, really my partner in the work. That's awesome. And she had to diagnose like, what's, what's the cash problem here? Um, and we, we unraveled that restructure our debt, paid our bills down. So it, but it was the hardest thing I've ever done professionally, like without question, without exception. And, you know, especially the human part of that, it's, it was an organization full of people who were really terrified. Um, and here we are trying to focus on this beautiful mission and trying to provide outstanding service to our clients. And our clients really need us. You know, they need us because they have disabilities and need access to the broader world and access to services. They need us because Head Start serves low-income families that are 150% or below the poverty line. And here we were, we're all wrapped up in this operational organizational stuff. Um, and I think that was the hardest part for me was the human element, both how fearful our employees were, but also are we doing right by the people that we're serving? And so my priority was to get through that kind of hard financial turnaround stuff as quickly as possible so we could get our lenses back where they where they belonged. Wow. And how do you even step into that type of environment where I don't want to say it's hostile, right? But it definitely has its low frequency of you know, what's going to happen and probably a lot of uncertainty. Mm-hmm. Um, what did you have to do initially to kind of calm people's expectations or maybe even just concerns, fears that, you know, yeah, what, what do you do in that situation? <laughs> I can't even imagine what that must feel like. Well, there's all these kind of operational structural things, which if, you know, as a seasoned CEO, I knew how to do those things. But I, I think doing a situation like this well, really, I focused on the, hum- the humanity, on the human part, um, and, which is I had a lot of touch points with as many of our employees as possible, meaning showing up in their space, coming to their programs, you know, I had a practice of any time we made structural changes or budget cuts or position cuts that I went and I talked to people in person about it and took responsibility for it. And I was transparent with them um, and honest. And I think that is what held our organization together is those, it wasn't like these decisions were being made somewhere off, you know, in my third floor office at 1939 West 13th Street. It was me standing in front of people in a room having a conversation and being being honest about what was happening and that didn't always mean it was good news right you know that i was sharing um but then i was i was honest but i was also reassuring i felt confident we are going to get through this we are going to be better for it on the other side and my responsibility is to take care of our people take care of our clients and also to ensure that this never happens to the organization again. That part I think I'm still working on <laughs> because it takes a, a lot to build an, you know, an infrastructure that it has accountability, the right kind of accountability and controls in place Absolutely. so that even if I'm not here anymore or the CFO is gone or the whole board turns over, that that's built into the kind of DNA of the organization. And, and honestly, I'm still, I'm still working on that piece of it. It's not done. 
Well, I mean, three years into it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's a, but it's an accomplishment. And I think that's what you see a lot of leaders that get brought in at any level, right? How, no matter the size of the company, that um, they come in with an agenda with an, uh, a belief that they, they know how to fix it. Or yes. They've been here before. They've done it. And, and they go in with this, you know, bowl in a china shop almost mentality. Yep. And, and you see it fails time and time again. And, and to hear this approach, I think, is more so just establishing that commitment early on. That's right. That you really are a servant leader. And, yes. and you know, I want to talk a little bit about that because that was a, an important point for you that you brought up over and over was just being this servant leader and what leadership really means, right? And what it says is, what you, what you said was occupying the seat and moving a business forward in a mission, right? In service to people and service to your own employees. Talk to me a little bit about that in terms of just how you're in this leadership role, you're stepping in, but you have really two responsibilities, not only to your clients, but also to your employees, That's right. right? Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think one of the traps of leadership and every leader who's ever sat in a leadership position can fall into this trap, including me, is it's very easy to think that it's about you or to put yourself at the center. Um, your, you know, your ego draws you in that way. But none of the leaders that I respect think or behave that way. Um, you know, the role models that I've had don't behave that way. And so the way I see leadership is you really are temporarily occupying a seat. It's not yours. You don't own it. It means that for this time period in Easter Seals history, I'm the one that is helping to move the work forward and to manage the work. But my overarching responsibility is to focus on the people that we serve, number one. The mission always comes first. And when the mission always comes first, it means making really hard decisions. And sometimes those decisions are not what's best for me personally or for my senior leaders or for our employees. You know, the pandemic put us in, a, in that situation many times where we, and, and continues to, where some of the policies around COVID-19 very, were very uncomfortable for our employees, but my top priority is protecting our clients yeah. and they're vulnerable. So there's a lot of instances of that. So that's number one, is you protect the mission, you protect the people that you serve in our case, because that's central to our mission. And I think the other level of responsibility for a servant leader is to take care of the people who do the work. <laughs> and that, And sometimes I think that gets lost in the shuffle. I know some leaders who are very good at focusing on the mission, but they forget that the people who are actually carrying the mission are the employees. So are we taking care of them? And one of the things I'm really proud of as we move into, you know, this year is we're going to have a town hall with our employees tomorrow and, and unveil a lot of this. We're really going to invest in them in a way that we haven't in the past. Um, everything from, you know, doing a, an evaluation of all of our compensation and are we being fair to them is it fair equitable compensation are, you know are their benefits affordable can they afford their health insurance um, are we giving them the kind of flexibility that they deserve and need you know with pto and other things to take care of themselves and then are we giving them the kind of training and supports that they that they need um, around things like trauma-informed practice around um, you know professional learning that they need to grow um, and so that's what I think servant leadership is about, is number one, it's the mission and those you serve. But a maybe 1A, it's not even number two. You know, 1A is about, 
are we wrapping our arms around our talent and taking good care of them? I want our Easter Seals to be the employer of choice. Hmm. I want people when they see a job posted for our organization to say, I have heard that is a great place to work and that they take care of their people. Um, and both, you know, obviously for the labor market's really a tough place to hire in right now. So it's important to just be a competitive employer. But we also want to do it because it's just the value that we need to bring to the, to the organization. And I, my argument is if we take care of our people, they'll take better care of our clients. Absolutely. No, I couldn't agree more. And as I'm hearing it, we're talking about my, my time in the Marines. And um, that, that, that literally is the Marine model, which is first is mission accomplishment. And then it's troop welfare, right? In yeah, that order. That's and, right. And you don't think about the one until... The, the mission is done. So um, it sounds like that's what you're doing and the mission is extremely important. So, you know, with that, how can people help support the mission, you know, Easter Seals, how can they get involved? Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, there's, there's a lot of different ways. I mean, first of all, there is, um, we talked a little bit about our social enterprise, Harry's Buttons, um, and that's a unit within Easter Seals that both provides employment training and job opportunities for our students at Easter Seals Academy who are ages 18 to 22. So they learn employment skills there. But we also have um, adults with disabilities who work in Harry's Buttons. And, and that little operation creates um, buttons. So I was, we were just talking about we do the uh, 25,000 It's My First Game buttons for the Chicago White Sox, for instance. We do a lot of union buttons. Um, but we always are looking for new clients um, if you need to have buttons produced or silk screening. We do T-shirts like the Easter Seals polos, and there's um, disability awareness apparel all available in our store. So you can support us by supporting Harry's Buttons. Um, your listeners can also support us just through direct donations. You know, that's when I came into Easter Seals, there wasn't a huge um, foundation philanthropy or private philanthropy agenda. That's something that we're building from the from the ground up. And so we're always looking for philanthropic support for the work that we do. Um, and there's a lot of different priorities to invest in that I think compel people. And I would say the third thing is bigger than that, which is about the work itself and advocacy around the work itself. Um, you know, the best kind of support that we can get is advocacy and understanding of the importance of early childhood and disability-related work. Um, and, you know, this idea of equity and access, that that's what this work is about. If we want to have an equitable, accessible society, you know, helping people with disabilities to realize their potential, um, investing in early, you know, very strong, high-quality early childhood options, these are critical to changing and transforming life trajectories um, of individuals who really need it. And so... That's the other thing people can do is advocate, get involved, um, be knowledgeable about how important these fields of work and study are. They really are. No, they're, they're, <laughs> we need it. We need, we need us as a people to wake up to our purpose and really to serve others is, is what it's about. And you guys are already doing it and making it easier for people to get involved. So if you're out there listening, I would highly encourage you. You can visit the Easter Seals website through our post, but also you can contact Sarah directly through the form below that she'll get in her inbox. And you know, with that, I just want to thank you, Sarah, for everything you do for our community, for Easter Seals, uh, for what Easter Seals does, but also just for coming in and, and sharing your story as well. Um, you know, thank you. 
Well, thank you for having me, Tony. I enjoyed it. Um, it is, I feel very blessed and privileged to be doing the work that I'm doing with the amazing people that I'm doing it and for our amazing clients too. It's, it's really a wonderful place to be and I couldn't be more blessed.